following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. That is a seriously dense passage of Scripture, isn't it? There's so many places that we could go with it. Certainly many sermons have been written and preached on this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But today I want to focus in on just the very last half sentence of that passage. Um, The sentence says this, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So I have just one observation that I want to make about that text today. I'm going to give you one last, if Trinity is true, then statement for this series that we've been doing on the Trinity. And uh, so just that one observation, and then I have a few concluding thoughts for the series as a whole. God's weakness. Can you even imagine such a thing? Sometimes I I think that if certain sentences weren't found in the Bible, that people would get kicked out of church for saying them. Um, Sometimes people get kicked out of church for saying the words that are in the Bible anyway. Uh, But in this case, I think it's one of those things that if someone just came up with that today and said the phrase God's weakness, that would be extremely problematic for many, if not most, Christians in uh, our part of the world in our day and age. And the Greek word that uh, is translated as weakness in this passage of Scripture might even be more alarming to us because in other places in the New Testament, that word is translated as um, sickness or even powerlessness. You know, uh, we do not admire weakness or sickness or powerlessness in our culture. What we admire is strength. And so assigning the quality of weakness to God seems like a heresy. We do not admire dependency in our culture. We tend to admire self-sufficiency. And yet, God exists as eternally dependent between and among the persons of the Trinity. If you think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to use the traditional language around the Trinity, as uh, being three persons who are one God, this great mystery, Uh, just think about the Father and the Son. It's the Son that makes the Father a Father. It's the Father who makes the Son a Son. And you could go through these relationships in the Trinity and realize that there's an inherent uh, dependency, one face to the next, if you will. Relationship is inherently a vulnerable thing. Anybody you're in relationship with is somebody that you're vulnerable with. Isn't that right? And yet God exists in relationship. Even within relationships, plural, more than one. I started off this series by saying something along the lines of one stands alone, two are in opposition, but three make a dance. And I think that idea of being in this um, relationship of vulnerable dependency within the Godhead is really profound and powerful for us. 
because that seems to assume a certain level of vulnerability between these persons of the Trinity. You know, the prayers of the church often start out with the phrase, Almighty God. But what if we were to imagine a prayer that began instead with the phrase, All Vulnerable God? That's the title of today's sermon, The All Vulnerable God. How would that change things for us if we prayed that way? If, if we were to remember that our view of God necessarily affects our view of the world, of other people, and of ourselves, what would the consequences of praying to an all-vulnerable God be for us? But I think that's what we see in God. And I think you can see it not only in some theoretical application of the idea of the Trinity, but in many of the stories of Scripture as well. And so here's the one observation I want to make about the idea that, that a Trinitarian God is vulnerable within God's self. If Trinity is true, that's our key phrase, if Trinity is true, then our own vulnerability, our own weakness, our own powerlessness, our own dependency on the other, all of those things, if Trinity is true, I think would become a path to intimacy with God. And if you look at the stories in the Bible, you can see all kinds of instances where a person's vulnerability led them to be more intimately known by God and for them to know God more intimately. You think of Moses, who famously uh, complained that he couldn't go before the Pharaoh uh, to proclaim God's liberation of the Israelites because he had a speech impediment. You think of Jonah, who is not a character in the Bible who we assign very much power to, um, and certainly uh, to be trapped in the belly of a fish for three days and spat up on the shore um, is whatever we might say about the historicity of that event, um, is certainly a vulnerable experience. You think of Job, who at the end of um, dozens of chapters in, in the book that bears his name, of um, tragedy and questioning comes to understand something about God that he didn't understand at the beginning of the story. It's obvious that Jesus himself, as a man, was uh, profoundly vulnerable to the point of his own death. And something else that's interesting is that all of the people he healed also became vulnerable. They weren't just vulnerable in their um, ailments, their sicknesses, but they were vulnerable in that moment of healing because they had to allow him to reach out and touch them. Um, the exceptions being people who were so vulnerable that they couldn't even leave their houses to come find him. Richard Rohr, whose book on the Trinity has been a big inspiration to me over this past month, said it this way, the touchable ones are the healed ones. So I wonder if the path to intimacy with God, the path to knowing God, is to be vulnerable in the way that God is vulnerable 
There's that famous verse in the Bible that says, be holy as the Lord is holy. I wonder if we might say, be vulnerable as the Lord is vulnerable. But of course, the key question um, throughout all of this is, how then shall we live? I started out this series on Trinity, on Trinity Sunday, before I knew it was even going to be a series, by asking what possible point could be found uh, in our day, given all that's going on in our world, in this relatively abstract theological concept that some people probably don't even believe in. And if they do, they don't even know what they believe. And I think what we have found is that, in fact... Trinity has so much to teach us about all kinds of things, including many of the things that are going on in our society and in our world right now. This this could have become a whole course in what you might call applied Trinitarian theology, which is to say, I mean, applied theology is the only kind of theology that's that's worth engaging in, right? Uh, Whatever you believe about God, you have to sort of apply that to the world somehow. And I think over these past several weeks, I know for myself, I've thought about applying my theological beliefs, that is to say, what I think is true about God, to areas of my life and of the world around me that I never would have thought of before. And so there are many answers. There have been, even in these past few weeks, to the question, if Trinity is true, how then shall we live? But if I had to leave you with one passage from the Bible that could serve uh, as a credo, if you will, for people who want to live in the way of a triune God, it would be these few sentences from the first letter of John. This is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Talk about a verse that, if it wasn't in the Bible, would get you kicked out of church for saying it. God is love. Love is God. Anytime you experience or see love, you are experiencing and seeing God. And so many of you want to know God more, but that seems like such a lofty goal, better left to someone who has um, dedicated their entire life to spirituality. Somebody like a nun or a monk might be able to come to know God more, given all the time, every day, all week, for years on end. That might be a reasonable goal. But for us normal people, Where do you even begin, right? 
And yet we crave this knowledge. We, we desire this intimacy with God. I would suggest that if you want to see God more, if you want to know God more, but that that seems too distant and lofty a goal, you need only to seek to love more. And in loving more, you will find God. So as we wrap up this series, you may have lots and lots of questions remaining about the Trinity. I still do. I want to encourage you to think of this understanding of God as a spiral. You kind of go round and round and you don't quite know where you're headed. But a spiral eventually does get going somewhere, doesn't it? And so it's not exactly linear, but the more time you spend seeking God and trying to understand Trinity, the more you will um, come to understand, but also the more able you will be to let go of the need to understand. And I think that second part is actually probably more important than the first. I'd encourage you, be patient with yourself and Revel in the fact that you can learn this for the rest of your life. See, relational spirituality is a lot more like um, writing than hockey, right? Hockey players get better and better and better as they get to a certain age, and then they reach a peak, and then they start to get worse and worse and worse. And um, those of us who have been in athletics and have started to experience some age um, maybe feel a little bit sad about the fact that our best days are behind us. But with something like relational spirituality, your best days can always be ahead of you. I would encourage you also to find your own connections to God. Which is not to say that nothing matters and you can do whatever you want and you'll figure it out. But it is to say that you do have to learn it on your own. You do have to know God on your own and experience God on your own. A spiritual teacher, a pastor, can tell you only so much. But as the saying goes, God doesn't have grandchildren, only children. And each of you is a beloved child of God. And you can experience God directly, and in fact must experience God directly, um, ultimately without any help, without any intermediary. I'll leave you with some things that Richard Rohr said in his book. I mentioned it already. Uh, the book is called The Divine Dance, by the way, if you'd like to read it at some point on your own. Uh, just a few things that I jotted down as I was reading that didn't fit into the sermons, but I think are really helpful in trying to understand Trinity. <laughs> One of them is you will almost always look in the wrong places. <laughs> Only at the sunset and not at the cracks in the sidewalk is one of the examples he gives, which I think is beautiful. He says, the divine generosity only waits for a Mary-like womb, a beloved son. He says, we are often guilty of trying to find God um, using a microscope rather than a telescope. 
And um, lastly, he says that God refuses to be known, only loved. Quoting St. John of the Cross, he says, God refuses to be known, only loved. God is love. All love is God. If you want to know God more, but it seems like too lofty a goal, seek to love more. And there you will find God. May it be true for you, for me, and for us, this day and always. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.